0: Well, let's take our Bibles out this morning and let me have you turn them to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We'll be reading a portion of that this morning and as we look at the events of Palm Sunday and the events that followed leading up to Good Friday when we'll we'll pick that up on Friday. Um, But we know something for a fact in our world, a sad fact in our world, and that is that people are killed every day. People are murdered every day. Uh, In 2018, where the last complete record uh, exists, in the United States, we can learn that there were 54 people murdered in the United States every day. And if we add to that number, the number of those that were murdered, that were not yet born, that number rises to over 2,400 a day. Uh, Most of those crimes we never know about. Some grab our attention. Some become newsworthy. uh, When it's a prominent person that is killed, an important person, if it's a national figure, an international figure that is murdered, uh, some especially tragic murders, Uh, terrorist activities assassinations and as we saw multiple times just in the last couple of weeks uh, times where many people are murdered through these mass shootings like uh, like we had in in georgia and colorado this week people are murdered for a variety of reasons none of them good Uh, we hear about them we are enthralled by them to a certain extent um the solving of murders especially. There are lots of television shows about how, you, how people solve murders and, and things like that. We're also uh, enthralled, it seems, with fictional murders. Our, our interest in this goes to the mysteries that surround uh, fictional murders that we read in books. You know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie and, and, and people like that. Stories that are rich with intrigue, Shady characters, evasive clues, and ultimately brilliant solutions. The Bible itself is filled with the record of murders. In fact, the first two siblings uh, that we read about in the Bible were involved in a murder. And as we go through the scripture, we read of many times where people are murdered. Over the course of this week... This Passion Week, as it is called, this morning, Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we're going to take a look at a murder. A murder that stands at the very center of the message of the Bible. The most famous murder in history. Although we don't usually refer to it as a murder, it was certainly a murder, more heinous in its commission than any murder before or since, more enthralling in its content than any murder fabricated by any author and made all the more riveting because it actually happened, more sweeping in its effects and significance than any murder committed before or since. Of course, I'm referring to the murder of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ the Messiah, the anointed and only begotten Son of God, killed by men, murdered by men. And I said that we don't usually refer to it as a murder, we simply usually speak of the crucifixion, but of course a murder is really what it was, as we'll see, done for specific reasons, interestingly the most important reason, uh, completely unknown to its perpetrators. We're going to look at it, as I say, in three parts, three acts of the drama of redemption as it played out over this week. This morning, Act 1, Good Friday, Act 2, and then on Easter Sunday, uh, sort of the the postlude to that murder. This morning, we're going to look at Act 1, the events that led up to it, and we're calling that act Triumph and Treachery because the record contains both. We're going to look at the triumphal entry to begin with. We'll look at the treacherous enemies, the transcendent enterprise, and the treasured effect. We start with the triumph um, and the topic that many people, many churches will be preaching, many preachers will be preaching on this morning, and that's the topic of the triumphal entry. Let's read the record of the triumphal entry in the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 21. And let's stand one more time uh, as we read God's word. And let's be reminded that this is God's word as he speaks it to us. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, once again, we, we count it such a great privilege to be able to together open your word, to hear it, to profit from it, to have you speak to us, Lord, through your word and through your ordained uh, preaching of your word. And we pray, O oh God, that you would remind us of these important things this morning. As we begin this series, we pray that it would be profitable to us, and we pray that we would rejoice in what you have done through uh, this horrible situation, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. As I said, we start with the triumph, the triumphal entry, we read the record here, a seeming high point in the ministry of Jesus his earthly ministry his public ministry had begun about three and a half years before this point uh, at the other end of the nation of Israel up there in the north for many during these years as Jesus uh, traveled walked around uh, teaching and and preaching to those that that would hear him the Word about Jesus, of course, spread, and as he he taught, speculation about him was plentiful and quite varied. First, there was the opinion of the people. Remember, at one point, Jesus asked his disciples about that. In Matthew 16, Jesus took his disciples aside and said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do the people say that I am? What are they saying? And, of course, you you know the answer. They said some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you are uh, Jeremiah. Some say one of the other prophets. That was the the opinion of the people. Varied. And for the most part, respectful, if, if a little misunderstanding of who he was. There was also the opinion of those who were the religious leaders of Israel during this time. Those who were really the enemies of Christ, especially the the Pharisees, and to a a lesser degree, but still considered enemies, the Sadducees, the, the elders of the church. The Pharisees and these religious leaders, their opinion of Jesus was that he was one who had come and was disrupting their power disrupting their ability to control the people. Jesus was bringing uh, the good news of the kingdom of God. And so their, their opinion of Jesus, at one point we learn in John 8, was that he was possessed, possessed by a demon, that he was empowered by the devil to do what he did. Luke 11 also says that, that he did what he did by the power of the devil himself. But then there was another group of people that had an opinion of Jesus, and that was the opinion of Jesus' disciples, the ones who knew him best, the ones who were with him day and night, who traveled with him, who learned from him, who sat at his feet as he taught them in all of these different places. And we know that they expressed their opinion throughout the Gospels. At the very beginning of the Gospel of John, Andrew, after meeting and interviewing Jesus, went immediately, John tells us, to his brother Simon Peter. He says to him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the anointed one who was to come, the one that uh, we sing about, the one we hope for. The one that we sang of this morning when we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. the Messiah, the the Mashiach, the, the anointed one, the one who had been promised from the days of the Old Testament, the one who would come and would be a great deliverer of God's people, the anointed one, the one who had been set aside for a particular work. Remember in the Old Testament there was this This practice of anointing certain types of people, setting them apart to their office in a very visual way, usually with pouring oil on the head of the one who was being anointed. Prophets, remember, were anointed, as were priests, as were kings. But there was to come, the Old Testament promised, one who would embody all of these All of these in in, in their fullness and one who would be the great servant of Yahweh. One who would come on behalf of God and who would be God himself and who would come to his people. A divinely appointed and anointed king would come. Psalm 2 verses 6 and 7, God speaking himself here saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. This is the Lord uh, now speaking. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This Messiah was promised to come throughout the Old Testament. And when he came, he would be the one to fulfill that great promise that was given to King David, that one would come from him, from his line, a descendant of his who would inherit his throne and and whose dominion would be far-reaching and a never-ending dominion. This is the one who is variously described in the Old Testament as the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the son of man, the servant of Yahweh, the eternal father, the prince of peace, mighty God, wonderful counselor, the branch, my chosen one. And we could go on and on naming the various ways that this one who was to come is is described. And all of the promises that are made concerning him. There was a a Jewish Christian theologian who says that there are more than 456 predictions of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. And when the Messiah came, he would come as the king of God's people. And he would be hailed as the king as the son of david and that's the context of Matthew 21 because the people the jews were knew all of this they lived with this expectation and after the 400 years where god had not spoken to his people in between the old testament and what we have as the new testament the people were expectant they were waiting And then here, after Jesus' three and a half years of ministry, after these varied opinions of Him have made their way throughout the people, here in Matthew 21, we have the record of this great processional, this seeming high point of the ministry of Jesus, this great reception of this King by the people. And Jesus, who had earlier, remember, withdrawn Himself when the people wanted to come and make him king by force, now comes plainly revealed as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. He accepts that praise. Let me point out just a couple of things, a couple of details here about what we call the triumphal entry. In verses 1 through 3, we read now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said, sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. And Mark records especially that that, that scenario plays out exactly as Jesus had said it would. That someone said, "What are you doing? Why are you taking this?" And they told them that the Lord has had need of them, and so the man sent them. And this is done not just to show Jesus omniscience, though it does that, but the particular reason that this was done, as Matthew is so fond of recording throughout his gospel, is what he says in verses four to five. He says, "This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet." That's That's Matthew's favorite phrase, that this was done to fulfill what was spoken or what was written, to show the things that Jesus did that fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. And here he says that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a beast of burden. An exact quote there, even as we used it as our call to worship this morning from Zechariah 9 9. A passage that speaks very specifically about the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One. And again, this would would not have been lost on the people outside of Jerusalem this day that this one they were proclaiming as king was coming riding on a donkey. And we see that by the, the response of the crowd. Also, if we go back to 1 Kings chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but in, at the end of the reign of David, when he was uh, working to turn over the rule of the kingdom to his son Solomon, in 1 Kings 1, verses 33 and verse 38 and verse 40, thirty-four, sorry, 44, we have the record of the fact that David said, Take Solomon and put him on my donkey. And ride him around as a way to show that he is the one who is ruling next. He is the one to whom the throne is being given. And so that speaks to to what is being done here as the, the ultimate son of David. The one to whom the promises were truly given comes riding into town. But look at the response of the crowd in verses 7 to 9. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus' party, remember, is coming from Bethany, where they had been. They're coming over the Mount of Olives and there is a group that was with them there following them into town. And we read in verse 8 that uh, that most of the crowd spread their cloaks. Now, who is that crowd? Well, partly, that crowd are the peop- are, is the crowd who had been in Jerusalem. Because we read also that there are those who had been in Jerusalem who came out, John 12 talks about this, they came out to meet them. So you've got the crowd coming in, the crowd coming out, meeting together uh, and making up this throng that praises Christ and recognizes him as the messiah this is the royal procession this is the triumphal entry this is a a picture a perfect picture of of the coming uh the reception that was given to a conquering king who would come back to town returning from battle the people would come and they would spread their clothing and their their palm and these palm branches on the ground so that the king is sort of symbolically separated from the earth because he's the king kind of like a red carpet. And palm branches especially, uh, because palm branches had a very uh, close tie with Jewish nationalism. This was the king of Israel coming. This was the king uh, in David's line coming. And this was the appropriate response for the Messiah who would come. And it shows that at least for now, at least for this point, at this point, that the people accept him for who he said that he was. And they cry out, verse 9, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he from Psalm 118 that we, we recited this morning. Again, one of the primary messianic psalms. And one of the two most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted 14 times in the New Testament. Uh, By the way, the other most quoted psalm is Psalm 110. Which, by the way, is also a prophecy of the coming of the anointed son of God. And now, this was the time of his coming. Openly. Publicly, into the capital of Israel. The great and majestic city of David, Jerusalem. You know, at various points in Jesus' ministry, Jesus had told his followers after certain events, he said, my hour had not yet come, or has not yet come. Well, now his hour has come. John twelve twenty three. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man, To be glorified. And the beginning of that whole process that we're looking at over these three sermons on these three days, the beginning of this is this triumphal entry where Jesus is proclaimed to be what he truly is, the King. And so Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem. By all appearances, I say, things are going well. To those who would look to to the secular eye that would even look on this. It looks like Jesus has reached uh, the point that he was seeking to reach. Indeed, most would have thought that things were going as well as they could. And it was only glory ahead. But of course, we know, in retrospect, and Jesus knew before the fact that this wasn't the case. In fact... A little bit later, Matthew 26, Jesus reminds his disciples, he says that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Because there was more going on that Palm Sunday and the days that followed. We don't have a service every day of the week this week, so we need to kind of catch up and and do a lot of, of looking at ahead of time. There was more to what was going on than just this great royal procession, more than the, the triumphal entry, because along with the triumphal entry, there were treacherous enemies about. Behind the scenes, as they say, there was treachery afoot. People in the shadows, schemes in development. This one who was riding into Jerusalem was the Holy One of God. He was and is the light of the world and His presence here was, to many, the most hated and feared event in recent memory. And these things begin to set the stage for what will come to a climax on Friday. When we talk about murders and we talk about murder trials especially we talk about typically three things opportunity means and motive and jesus enemies had all three they wanted to do away with jesus each for their own reason each had a motive for the the murder that was going to be committed and we'll see also that as the parties began to coalesce that they also gained the opportunity and the means The first of those treacherous enemies we've named before, we'll name them again. These were the Jews. The the leaders of the the Jewish um, religion. The scribes and the Pharisees particularly. You know, from the very beginning Jesus had butted heads with the religious leaders. Not because they were religious but because they were merely religious. Jesus Talked to them as he talked to others. And Jesus, you know, was was loving and kind and gentle with sinners. Isaiah had said that a bruised reed he would not break and a faintly burning wick he would not quench. And he didn't. You read the Gospels, you read the way that that he interacts with sinners. He was gentle, humble in heart, as he said. He came to call sinners to repentance. He came to offer sight to the blind. And strength to the lame, to offer eternal life to those who were dead, even as he does today. And the message of, the, of these sermons, the message of this these events, are or is the redemption that is available through Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. He came to give eternal life. He came to offer himself up that people might be made right with God all who would believe in him. That is what he did then. That is what he does today. And how wonderful it is that that is the case, amen? But Jesus had no kind words for hypocrites, for false prophets, for phony leaders. No compassion for those who turned religion into a show. And that was the religious leaders of the day the scribes, the Sadducees, and especially the Pharisees. In the early part of this Passion Week, Jesus spoke the harshest words that we have recorded in reference to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, where he said over and over to them Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! During his whole ministry, he had exposed their hypocrisy and told them that though they claimed to be children of Abraham, though they claimed to be children of God, he said to them that they were in fact children of their father, the devil. That did not go over very well with the scribes and Pharisees. And here today, um, in these events here, right after Jesus entered in Jerusalem, he goes right to the temple. And drove out those who had come into the very house of God and turned it into a place of business, a place of merchandise. And Jesus taught the people in the early days of this week. And we see the the reaction of these men over in chapter 26. Just after the verse I read a couple of moments ago. It says, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. That's the religious leaders of the day. And they had a motive to see Jesus killed. Their motive was hatred. From early on in the Gospels, we read that they sought an opportunity to rid themselves permanently, of Jesus. Because of their hatred of Him, because of what He taught, because of what it said about them. The Roman governor, Pilate, that we'll talk about on Friday, recognized that it was because of envy, Matthew 27, 18 says, because of jealousy that they had delivered Him up. Especially after what they witnessed on Palm Sunday, when the people were giving their acclaim to Jesus and calling him the Messiah, giving to him the the praise that was to be given to the Messiah. And after what he said about them in chapter 23, about their hypocrisy and the results of that, their hatred grew. That was their motive. Then there was the people ah, the mob. You know, they were largely ignorant of many of these things. And of course, Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, had compassion on them. He said that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The Pharisees were not acting as their shepherds as they were too. The priests were not. The Sadducees were not. But the people, as time went on, became... Uh, influenced by the scribes and the Pharisees. And we'll see it this week. You know, at the beginning of the week, it's all, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the end of the week, it will be these same people saying, we will not have this man to rule over us. Away with him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. And that through the instigation of the scribes and the Pharisees. The Jewish people who were expecting a Messiah who would come and rescue them, not from their sin, though, not from spiritual oppression, they were looking for someone by this time who would rescue them from Rome. From physical, political, and national oppression. And when Jesus rode into the city, proclaimed as king, and then when he did not go to the city hall and start uh, an insurrection the people end up turning on him as Pilate brought Jesus out and offered to free him again the religious leaders will persuade the crowd to ask that a murderer be released to them instead and that Jesus be killed the third enemy of Jesus is perhaps the hardest one to understand because he came in the disguise of a friend and of course that's Judas we'll talk more about him on Friday but he of course was one of Jesus disciples he was one of the 12 he he who had walked and talked and eaten and slept and labored with Jesus for three and a half years Judas had seen his miracles he had heard his teachings he had witnessed his compassion. With a man like that, that was with Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, what could possibly be the motive for him to want to do away with Jesus, to have a part of that? What made him a treacherous enemy of the Lord? One word, greed. Greed. Matthew 26, 14 says that one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Greed. That was his nature. John 12, 1 through 6 tells us that Judas was a thief. He was the He was the treasurer for the little band that traveled with Jesus. He kept the money, and John tells us that he used to help himself to what was in it. That was his motive. His opportunity, of course, came when the Jews offered him money the 30 pieces of silver, the small price, a price to betray Jesus. His means was, of course, a kiss a kiss of greeting in the garden, a kiss of betrayal, pointing out to the guards in the dark garden who they were to take. He was a disciple, all right, but he was not a true disciple of Christ. Jesus rightly said that Judas was a devil. He was a slanderer. It's in John 6, 70 and 71. Not a simplistic, well-intentioned dupe but a tool of the devil, though he absolutely acted of his own accord. Satan used him to do this great horrible deed to betray his creator and the God of life, to betray him into the hands of his enemies. John thirteen twenty seven, we read, Then Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do quickly and that leads us to the fourth enemy treacherous enemy of Christ on this week and that's Satan of course we know his motive was unmixed unmitigated hatred and opposition though in no way an equal to Jesus in any way Satan stands for everything that Jesus stands against and vice versa Jesus is the light, Satan, darkness. Jesus is the truth, Satan, a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is the savior of his people, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Satan is the spirit of Antichrist. But he is not stupid, he is not ignorant. He knows what is going on. He knows what Jesus is about to do. His motive is not only hatred and opposition, but desperation. Jesus is about to do what the devil has feared ever since the Garden of Eden. And he is running out of time to try to stop it. He's tried many times before. As you read through your Bible, you see it time and time again. From the very beginning, from Cain killing his brother Abel, he's trying to destroy the seed of the woman that God had said would come and crush the head of Satan. You know many of these. In the time of Esther, another plot to destroy the line which would lead to the Messiah. In the days of the the evil queen Athaliah, who sought to destroy the royal seed of David and almost succeeded. But through God's providence, young Joash survived. In the New Testament, we know what happened when Jesus was born, that Herod tried to wipe out the Son of Man, the Son of God, who was coming. Through the instigation of the devil, he had all of the ones that could possibly fit the description of this king who had been born to be killed. Satan even made the direct approach, tempting Jesus in the wilderness through Peter. He prompted him to have his mind, as Jesus said, not on the things of God, so that Jesus said to Peter, get behind me Satan and now Satan's time to stop this is about over and he is desperate so as we looked at the triumphal entry we saw the promising outlook of the public actions and the proclamation of Christ as the Messiah we've learned that there were the treacherous enemies of Christ at work if we stop after the first point things look really great. If we stop after the second point things seem out of control in the other direction. Now not rosy, but hopeless. But let's look at the third aspect of what is going on and see the transcendent enterprise. The transcendent enterprise because there is more than going on more going on here than meets the eye. And this didn't all occur by chance, you know. Nothing does. It is not as though God's focus was on the glory of the triumphal entry and therefore he was distracted from all the scheming of the enemies over here so that he was taken by surprise in what happens. No, in the midst of the events taking place, there was ever and always a divine subplot going on. Or rather, a divine superplot going on. A macro-narrative a story behind the story, a story above the story. Once again, Genesis 3.15 comes to mind. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God said, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you want a plot statement for the entire Bible, there it is. A statement of the theme of Scripture. The rest of the Scripture is that verse being worked out in the minutest detail in history, in the plan of God. And Psalm 22 and Psalm 118 and Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 9 all filling in details as history has moved inexorably on toward these events this week in Jerusalem. This is not simply the way things worked out, but it is the only way that they could have worked out because it is the way that a sovereign God has decreed that they would work out. And this all accelerates now between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. With many events that happen, we don't, don't have time obviously to look at each one, but chapter 26 especially is full of indications that this was all taking place as had been predicted in the Old Testament and from Jesus' own lips and the chain of events will continue to fall out that way, Peter says, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was the plan of God The plan for the redemption of man coming to a climax in this week. Were the treacherous enemies working according to their own will? They certainly were. And yet they were doing exactly what could not possibly fail to happen because God had decreed it. Because it was God's plan of redemption. Peter will say again in Acts chapter 2 that Christ was murdered by the hands of wicked men. But this was according to that predetermined plan that was bigger than any of the participants, bigger than all of the participants. The transcendent enterprise of the omnipotent God. All to obtain something particular. In the middle of chapter 26 of Matthew, later in the week, Jesus and his disciples meet together one last time. Before the events that will take place, they meet in a borrowed upper room, and there Jesus and his disciples share a last supper. During which time Jesus reveals his betrayer and demonstrates the love of a master in serving others. And here we have a fourth aspect that we're going to look at this morning of this, the, this first act of this great, awesome, and horrific act we get a glimpse of the treasured effect. As Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's Supper in that room as part of that supper. In verses 26 through 29 of of, of Matthew, we read this and we've read this so many times before. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, "'Take, eat, this is my body.'" And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why is the God of the universe here in human flesh? Why has he experienced this triumphal entry? Why are His treacherous enemies about to be allowed to murder the innocent Son of God? Why, in fact, is Jesus about to be delivered over to them by God? Why has the God of all the universe, who does as He pleases in all the world and in all the lives of men, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, why has He undertaken this transcendent enterprise? It is because of this, people of God, because of the treasured effect effect of it all, that people's sins can be forgiven. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is why. Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the way that he takes away the sin of the world is by bearing the punishment for it in his own body on the cross. His earthly father, Joseph, was told before Jesus was even born, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. We look on these things, beloved, with On the one hand, abhorrence, especially as we consider the events of Good Friday. But also as we see the the things leading up to this, as we see the fact that the Jews and the people and Judas and Satan, because of what they were doing and because of to whom they were doing it, and because it is the most obscene act in the history of the world, and our temptation is to turn aside from it, to not think about it, to never mention it, but on the other hand we rejoice in it paul says i glory in the cross of christ and we embrace it we remember it we remember it every year when we look at these events we remember it every time we celebrate the lord's supper we remember it every sunday every lord's day when we gather together And we embrace it and we celebrate it because of that treasured effect. Because of what it does. Because of what these things did. We call the day coming up at the end of the week, the day of the murder of God, Good Friday. But we do so because these events are your salvation, child of God. The murder of the Messiah is life for you if you embrace Christ. And this is just the first act. This is the prelude. This is the triumph and the treachery. The triumph of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is critical to understand that Jesus came to fulfill prophecy. But by the end of the week, to those involved, much of that is forgotten. And now we see that the plot is laid. The trap is set. The betrayer has agreed to betray. The players are in place. The blood money has been given. And the plot to murder the sinless Son of God, to murder Jesus, the plot to murder the Messiah, is in motion. And it will not be stopped. The king has come to the king's city. To finish the work that he came to do. The work he took on our nature to accomplish. The work to redeem you, people of God. But there is more that needs to be done. And we'll see that on Friday. But for now, the curtain falls on Act 1. Let's pray. Our Father, so much to... Remember, so much to consider, so much to realize in this complex of events, beginning with the the glory of the triumphal entry, of the recognition of Jesus by the people as the Messiah, as the Son of David, who had come to assume the throne. But, Father, there were the, the enemies. There is the plot afoot to murder Jesus. All of that part of your plan, all of that part of the plan of redemption that you set in place and that you worked out to perfection even to this day when people hear the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, and respond to it in faith and are granted eternal life. And we thank you that you have granted us eternal life through Christ. We pray that you would help us as we think on these things in this week, as we have various opportunity, that we may do so with with joy as we see in them the very salvation of our souls. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.